The Grey Havens is one of my favorite music groups. But if someone asked me about the genre of music that they perform, I'd have a lot of trouble answering. They're sort of like a country, contemporary Christian, folk rock married couple who have a lot of references to Lord of the Rings and the Bible in their music. So in today's episode, I'm joined by Shane Saxon to talk about genre, but focusing on the categories of genre in literature instead of music and the role of genre in biblical interpretation. Shane is a longtime friend and a member of Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's the director of Trademark Schools for Memorial Press, and he recently completed his THM thesis where he investigates the role of genre in biblical interpretation. So Shane, thanks for joining me on our church podcast. Yeah, glad to talk to you. So I'll... I'll uh, lead the conversation with some questions here, but I was really interested in your thesis and thought it might be helpful for our church to think about the role of genre in biblical interpretation. And so maybe we can start by just getting your definition of genre as we think about the concept generally. Yeah, it's a good question because a lot of people, when they talk about genre, they assume a definition. And I don't think most people think critically about it. But the way I define genre is any significant affinity between two texts. And the key word there is any. I'm really talking about, you're, you're hearing me say certain significant affinities, but I'm actually saying any significant affinity, similarity, thematic continuity between two texts. Okay, so so a genre is, we identify it by these shared affinities. Um, so is, is this new to biblical interpretation as we seek to classify texts based on comparisons to other texts or what, where did genre come into, into play in biblical interpretation? Yeah. So genre as a concept has existed outside of biblical studies for a long time. I mean, it goes back to Aristotle and the Greeks and literary criticism and, Um, basically Aristotle came up with a set of rigorous rules for figuring out how the Greek uh, tragedians could be grouped together and then the comedies could be grouped together. Um, In biblical studies, um, the the concept came in through the work of classical scholars. Um, And so I would say that in the the popular consciousness, in in typical kind of conversation, if you're opened up a a general hermeneutics book, um, people who use the concept of genre are using it very much on a surface level, just talking about uh, two books that seem similar in the same way you would talk about two plays seeming similar. I mean, it's not very rigorously defined, but the way it actually came into biblical studies initially was in the 1800s through German scholars um, who were, who were relying on classical scholars and trying to figure out, um, through the methodologies they were using in classical studies, how to date and and figure out the origin of books. And so there's one famous scholar who is relying a lot on classicism and the, the classical scholars of Germany who argued that particular kinds of literature, particular genres, arose out of particular social settings. And so he, through that connection, he could look at where did these social settings exist historically. Now I can tell you where this book came from. So, you know, even from the beginning, it came into biblical studies um, with kind of a historical perspective. Okay. So, so from that angle, it's probably a little bit different than the way we would 
use genres as we talk about movie classification or something like that, um, a, a comedy film. And, and we just have this as a general category so we know what to expect. It's, it sounds like in early German scholarship there, perhaps it was maybe more to kind of reconstruct the development of a text or something like that. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting is that the way that people use the term, um, the way we we think about it, it's the same way that they, those German scholars, were using it, but um, in common usage, we we rarely are critically examining it. So we don't often think, does this movie perfectly fit into the genre of of comedy? We don't need to answer that question for it to be valuable to us. But in the realm of biblical studies, if you actually did explore what you know causes us to label the genres of the movies and the songs that we are using, um, it would actually start to break down in a similar way that I argue in the season. So they are related. It's just usually it refers to a different level of consciousness about how the terms are being used. Okay, sure. That makes sense. Um, we're we're maybe just using it more functionally and quickly rather rather than kind of more in depth way. So you you presented three views of genre and and talked through them in your paper. Can you give us those three approaches to genre or uses of genre? And then um, as we go through them, maybe we can you can highlight the problems with those approaches. Yeah, so the, the standard approach is what I label the taxonomical approach. And I would say I, I am relying really heavily on the work of two different scholars. One is Dr. Will Kynes, um, who wrote an, a book about an obituary for wisdom literature. And it's a really great book and worth reading. And I've um, tried to, re- I, I definitely think that he and I disagree on a lot of things, but I, I appreciate his work a lot. It was very helpful for me. And I, I followed his footnotes in a lot of ways to figure to do my own research. And he comes, he's the one who uses that language of a taxonomical approach. And this is what I think most people are doing when they talk about um, genre, is they are trying to taxonomize the literature that they are reading. And so they're trying to figure out how does all the different forms of literature that they are experiencing fit into each other in a hierarchy of classification. And so what you need to do to... to to discover genre is to define precisely what are the essential traits of this piece of genre of this piece of literature to, that makes it fit into a particular genre. Do all of the characters have a bad ending? That's the essential feature. Therefore, this is a tragedy. Is this movie um, defined mostly by the essential characteristic of humor? Then I can label this as a comedy. And so in the taxonomical view of genre, you are looking for essential features that give you an ability to name that particular piece of literature correctly. Um, so that would be the first view that I think that's the assumed and predominant view. And, and what are some of the potential dangers of holding rigidly to this taxonomical view where you're looking for kind of maybe the lowest common denominator of a genre and then assigning a tax based on that? Yeah, so the problem with it is um, the problem of, uh, of definition, ultimately. Things elude precise definition at, at, by nature. Um, and so a couple of examples I, I would use would be something like The Merchant of Venice. The Merchant of Venice is a, you know, a great play written by Shakespeare and typically accepted as a comedy um, because generally everything ends well for most of the, the characters except for Shylock and then the main character who um, W.H. Auden wrote a pretty famous essay about 
one of the big conundrums in directing that play is that the very last scene, all of the couples, except for the main character, go off together. They pair off together, uh, presumably to go off to marital bliss um, forever after, except for the main character. He's left on stage. And so directors have always wondered, what do I do with this character? Um, he's left here. And so even in this play, the the one essential feature that all the characters end up happy um, isn't really true. And so is that play actually a comedy? Well, we all think it is, but it, it doesn't really fit in that definition. So that in and of itself would maybe not be a problem. The problem is if we are motivated by these precise definitions, we think that these precise definitions, as I would you know argue later, are going to help us uncover meaning, then when it starts to break down, the meaning begins to, to lose its its stability because we don't have a precise definition to anchor it in. Mm. It, it also seems like this might be problematic if we're assuming that the author intended to have the work classified based on, on those kind of precise basic features. It seems like it sort of limits us in hearing the author and in understanding what they have to say. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, another issue that you're, you're pointing out is that when you classify something with a genre, you begin to highlight certain aspects of that text and minimize other aspects of that text. And so if I label something as a comedy, then I'm looking at all of the non-funny elements of that, that uh, movie or play through the prism and through the lens of the humor of that play. And so sometimes our genre designation limits our ability to understand something accurately. And if we have an imprecise definition, that even more causes problems with how we understand it. Now, I, I think we probably get this more intuitively with music than we do maybe with literature um, sure. or, or maybe even with art because I think you, you can imagine the musician who's asked what genre of music he plays and he's he kind of just says I, I, I don't want to define it you know we don't, sure. we don't like sure. to define it but I think that maybe that's a, a newer idea as we think about literature um, is because we we've so rigidly applied those and and had maybe just one or two features that we look for to really um, have that genre defined for us. So, so you moved yeah. on then from taxonomical to a family resemblance is maybe a step forward in an approach to genre. Yeah. So to get beyond that taxonomical view, um, some people looked at how does comparison really work, um, and so usually when we notice things are related, it's not because of one core essential feature that they share. It's because of, of a, a set of features. And so the metaphor that's used to illustrate this is family resemblance. Siblings don't look, I, I, they don't look related because of one particular thing. It's not like everyone in the family has the same nose. Um, when, when families are like that, it's funny and we all laugh about it, but it's usually something like one brother and sister share the same nose. And then another brother and sister share the same eyebrows but you know they're all in the same family because there are certain correlations and that seems to be more organic. And so literary, literary scholars pointed out, this is more how we kind of recognize it's not that two comedies, all of the characters end up in a positive sense. It's, it's different collection of features that seem similar. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it seems like it's a, a 
much more helpful way of looking at it. And even that analogy, we we draw on our own experience. And sometimes we can just know that someone is part of a particular family, even if we've never met them before, um, as, as we've known their family members. But it's, it seems like there might still be some drawbacks there as well. Yeah, that's right. And each of these different views of genre have their strengths. And I wouldn't say that there is no use for any of them. But one of the issues with the family resemblance theory is that at the end of the day, if you are not motivated by the practical benefit of the family resemblance theory, you have some kind of motivation that's causing you to investigate the similarities between two things. There, there's really no anchors to prevent you from making any two things resemble each other. And so a basic thought experiment would be to say, take three siblings and two of them are related. Uh, you can tell they're related because they both have red hair. And then two of the siblings um, are related because one has a squared face and one or two have a square face. That means that one has a square face and one has a red hair, but not the opposite. But he's related to both of the other uh, that they are related to each other. And that means that you could really, they have no resemblances, but they're actually related to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can really make anything relate to anything. If you take that, that metaphor to its most logical extreme. Sure. And and it seems like you could probably also do the opposite of um, ignore relationships that are there uh, is, is maybe you're focusing on other features or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's right. So then you have a third method of genre or, or approach to genre that you talk about is sort of a, a prototype. And um, I, I thought that as I read this one, it made sense to me as sort of a narrowing of the family resemblance piece to looking at maybe a stereotypical member of the family. Maybe you can explain this approach a little bit to us as well. Yeah, so the prototype view comes out of the cognitive sciences as there's really a cognitive turn and, you know, cognitive being the way that our minds work, really the mechanism of the mind as it interprets language. And what a researcher did is gave a a survey to college students and said um, that a really doggy dog is is something like a golden retriever. That is, the golden retriever seems to embody all the principles that that you would think of when you think of a dog. Um, and the same would be true of something like a robin. A robin is a really birdy bird. Um, whereas with a dog, a Pekingese is not a very doggy dog. You don't re- when you look at a Pekingese, you actually think of a rat and not a dog. <laughs> um, and this researcher gave ten categories and asked um, the the people taking the survey to rate from one to seven, what was the most prototypical of each of these categories? And there was 95% agreement. And what this really points to is that we really conceive of the similarities between things in terms of a prototype and everything else is seen in, in light of that prototype. And this really goes hand in hand with another aspect of our cognition. And that is, we, we perceive things really in terms of semantic frames. And what that means is that we think in, in narratives, uh, in a sense. So not only do we think of a golden retriever as a doggy dog, but along with the concept of the golden retriever is the whole mode of people having dogs who they walk and throw the ball to. to. And that's what makes the, the golden retriever the prototypical dog. It's not just 
his image, but the entire context of the golden retriever. And that's really how, how we think all of our thinking is in a particular context. And, and so then what does that look like as we cross the bridge from that analogy to an approach to genre? Yeah, that's good. And I, I actually delve a little bit into uh, apocalyptic literature and the way that genre has operated there. Um, as it's a pretty good illustration of the prototypical view. Um, and I'm, I'm relying here a lot on Carol Newsom, who's a great Old Testament scholar. And she points out that uh, when the apocalyptic group and the apocalyptic group are people who are studying things like Revelation um, and the prophets in the Old Testament who had these um, transcendent experiences with God that they were writing down about, they really pointed to particular texts, um, including Revelation, as prototypical apocalypse texts and said that there were other texts that revealed things that were apocalyptic, um, but they um, there were some that were more apocalyptic than others. And so they set down a, a few characteristics that were essential to the prototype of the apocalypse, um, but things on the periphery could be very similar to the prototype and not have certain essential features, um, but still be similar to the, to the prototype because of how the internal logic of that apocalypse was similar to the prototype. Um, so it, it is a pretty sophisticated theory, but it helped um, kind of resolve the issue of the taxonomical approach by allowing certain things that existed on the fringe to still be related to the main prototype. Okay. So, I mean, that, that seems like a really significant improvement because it, it keeps you from being so rigidly defined that you start to miss things. Um, but it, it also seems like it, it may lead you to not think carefully enough about attacks is, is it's just simply assigned to this category, but it's lacking some of the features. And, and so we can't glean all that it, we can from it as we would the more prototypical text, the, the more apocalyptic-y apocalyptic. Yeah, that's right. And it really is a helpful view. And I think that the the prototype view, some of the assumptions, at least about a cognitive approach to comparison, um, I ended up adopting in the final view that I, that I expressed what I called the intertextual view. And I'm borrowing that language again from Dr. Newsom and Dr. Kimes. But um, the, the issue with the prototype view is that we don't all share the same exact semantic frames. And so there I was interested in rooting my analysis of genre in some level of objectivity. And with the prototype view, the famous illustration that someone used is that if you were raised in Alaska or Antarctica, the prototypical bird would be a penguin, not a robin, um, because that's what you came to know. And that's the semantic frame um, that you have in your mind as you consider birds. Um, and so when you approach genre, it's very difficult from the prototypical viewpoint to know how much of your conclusion about what is the prototype is conditioned culturally and how much is is objectively rooted in analysis of the text. Mm. Now, stepping maybe away from the application of this prototype model to literature, do you think that maybe we just functionally do this in life as we try to classify whether it's people or job categories or something like that. Do you think that, that generally this is how we just navigate the world? 
Definitely. I, I really think that this goes back to that whole concept that our brains really group things into groups inherently. Um, that is, we, we can't make sense of random data. We have to put it into a context in our own minds. And I, so I, I do think we do that in, inherently. And it, it, I think the prototype theory shows us that we're not just grouping things together. We're also grouping them according to a particular thing that is the center of that group. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me that we put like with like, but there's the most like thing that everything else is kind of patterned out of um, right. and, and maybe in a concentrically wide circle further and further away from. And, and we might look at that thing in life and say, this is the most normal. Or when we start to look at a text, this is the plain, you know, category of this text. But then as we engage with people from other cultures or backgrounds or, or just different upbringings, we start to see the, the thing that I have placed at the center of that circle is the prototype maybe is way on the fringe for someone else's view of the prototype. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. So then the intertextual approach seeks to go and, and provide maybe some more help as we look at this. So talk to us about the approach there. And you mentioned you're following Dr. Kynes and others. So it's not new to you because you brought it to the front or something, but you, you did apply it to a text. But maybe you can talk us through the intertextual approach as, as well as some of the, the benefits of it and maybe any potential weaknesses that you saw. Yeah, so the strength of the intertextual view is that I'm actually really trying to sidestep all of the views that I've expressed to you so far are really concerned with definition. They're concerned with classifying um, the, the literature that you're looking at, whereas I, I wasn't as concerned about classification or definition. I was concerned about meaning. I wanted to know what the text meant, and this relies on a fundamental observation, and that is texts are read in relationship to other texts. And that sounds a little abstract, but it really is just as simple as if you know that the a book you picked up is a dictionary, then you're going to read it different than if you pick up a book that's a novel. And why is that? Because of other texts that are in the form of a novel and other, other texts that are in the, the shape of a, a dictionary. We read things in relationship to other things. And so that that's kind of the fundamental insight that caused me to, to really be interested in genre. But um, what, that insight, you could still say, okay, well, then I just need to find the right definition of what makes something a dictionary so that I can read things as dictionaries. And it doesn't seem to work that way. And, and that's where the problems of definition kind of caused me issues. So two, two additional steps I think need to be taken. First, I think we have to realize that um, anything that has, uh, a, that, that all the features, the significant features from a text can emerge to create different genre relationships um, in various ways and that these can work together. Um, and so, a theory that I stumbled across that was really helpful, and, and Dr. Kynes points to it in his work, is emergence theory. So I don't know, did, when you read the section on emergence theory, did it did it make sense to you? Yeah, and I, and I think it would be helpful if you go into that a little bit here. Yeah, so the scholar who wrote on it in kind of a fascinating book starts the book by talking about scientists hearing that a ball of slime was finding its way towards food, and everyone was confused about it. I and mean, I thought that was a great tagline for, for drawing me in. And 
each the ball of slime was a bunch of different cells and the leading theory was that okay there must be a cell that is guiding all of the other cells towards food but what they realized is that it wasn't one cell leading all the other cells each cell was working independently but the motion and the movement it created had a greater coherence than any one particular cell's motivations and so maybe an easier illustration of this is an ant colony no individual ant colony is trying to build a colony. They're all doing their own thing. But what comes up out of that is an ant colony. And in the same way, genre, individual texts are not trying to be genres. They can't be precisely defined as a genre. They're doing their own thing. But when you take all of the individual texts that are trying to be a particular thing – um, or all the different affinities between texts that are doing their particular thing, what arises out of it is a genre that has a greater complexity than the individual, but is still related to the individual component. Um, and so I can still look at a text and say, these texts are very similar because they both talk about covenants. And you know, in the Bible, there's six or seven. I can't precisely define necessarily covenant, but I can see how each of these different um, text in talking about covenant create this new category that I'm able to analyze and helps me understand each of these. Um, and so in that way, the genre emerges out of the text. And so that's kind of the application of emergence theory. And I, I really appreciated that and, and thought it allows us to maybe focus less on the classification of a text, well, to take everything good about classifying a text, but then to be able to focus on what authors are doing with text, uh, because that's sort of what the analogies are pointing to. You know, you're, right. you're focusing on what's emerging as a discernible pattern, but it's, it's a pattern that emerges from action that's being taken. And so if we can do that with text, then I think it allows us to try to better understand what the author is doing with that text. Yeah, that's right. And when it arises, though, it's still up to the reader to, to see it and to recognize it. And that's where you kind of come back to that idea of conceptual blending. And that is when, when something arises from these texts, these different patterns of similarity, it's still up to us uh, to recognize those patterns. Um, and so a good illustration of how this works is Constellations. And this is taken directly from Dr. Kynes. He points out how one kind of fascinating way that the mind works is that when we look at the night sky, if you are familiar with Greek mythology, you can look at the, the night sky and see stars, but also see Orion's belt. And so in some way, you're actually seeing two separate things that are totally distinct from each other and yet seeing a third thing. And that is both Orion's belt and the star. That's how our minds work. Mm -hmm. And so when a genre emerges from the text, you're actually seeing three distinct things. You're seeing the text and you're seeing two. Uh, you know, one text is one distinct thing, a second distinct text, and then a third thing, which is the blends between those two texts that are similar. Um, and that's where the meaning can come from, from looking at a constellation, you're actually able to more precisely identify the location of a star because of that blend of the two concepts, the constellation and the stars themselves. I, I think one other thing that I appreciate about this and, and that maybe you would see coming out of that analogy is that it sort of motivates readers of the Bible then to spend a lot of time reading the various texts of the Bible and in, in maybe not so much in, in trying to 
rigidly define the genre to plug a text into, um, but but rather to start to make associations between kinds of texts in the Bible and in, in, in what the authors are doing with those texts. Yeah, that's right. I think it focuses really on taking texts on their own terms. Um, and so in taking texts on their own terms, you begin to see different similarities and that new distinct similarity that it creates, that conceptual blend, gives new meaning to it, and it encourages you to continue doing that over and over again. As the illustration, I think, takes to the next level, with the advances in science now that we have in our ability to study the stars, not only are there constellations that we view from from one angle, but we can actually now look at the stars from a totally separate angle, and it creates a new constellation. And when those two constellations are overlapped, there's a further uh, conceptual blend that gives you even more precise meaning. And I think that analogizes how it's helpful to not only recognize one genre that emerges from text, but to, to analyze multiple genres as they arise from a text to gain even more precision in your reading of a book. And that's really coming full circle to what you talked about at the beginning. When you're reading a text, it's helpful not only to recognize genre, is that is an interpretive act, but to recognize multiple genres. And that's going to be the best way to get down to the heart of these, the singularity of these texts. I, I think that's really helpful. And so as we start to think about how do we as just normal Christians reading the Bible apply these ideas about genre to biblical interpretation, um, I, I think that it your your paper, and then when you sent Dr. Kine's book over to me a, a while ago, I was pushed to think about these things a little bit more carefully because I've taught several hermeneutics classes where I sort of just walk through how to interpret poetry, how to interpret um, historical narrative, how to interpret apocalypse, these sort of things. And, and so maybe you can help us think about how we can read the Bible with these categories of genre that we already have in mind, but maybe how to do that a little bit more carefully. Yeah, that's good. I, so I would use it as an illustration, what I, what I wrote about, and that is the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. In the Jewish community, it's known as Ha'azinu, one of two poems um, in the Pentateuch that are extended, um, written by, attributed to Moses. And when you read that poem, it's very distinct from the rest of Deuteronomy. Um, in 31, um, there's there's a, a prose passage where Moses is handing over the leadership to Joshua, and then he starts singing. And so there's, a, there's an initial problem just immediately when you come to this chapter, and that is it's so different than the rest of Deuteronomy. How are you supposed to read it? You can't read it quite like the rest of the chapter. And so you have to start asking yourself, what kind of text is this? And so when you get into it, you'll notice a couple of different things. One, you can fit this text into the rest of the narrative of Deuteronomy pretty easily if you if you pick up on the clues. In 31, multiple times, Moses says that he is leaving instruction for Israel. And if you look at the, the meaning of the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, that actually makes sense because the entire book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is where Moses is showing Israel, I've been with you, you people from the beginning, and at each point you have failed <laughs> to follow the covenant of Yahweh. 
that yet this law exists for every generation. And going forward, you need to learn again how to follow Yahweh. And the entire book ends up giving that central message that that you were with God, no matter what generation uh, that you're a part of, you can identify with the generation that was with Yahweh when he delivered them from Israel. And that's the covenant God that you are called to worship again and again and again. And so this chapter can be read just in that light as the last testament of a of Jewish sage saying, follow Yahweh, no matter what generation you're a part of, make this covenant personal to you, make it your, your message to your generation. Um, and so it can be read in that light. And it has been read in that light since the very earliest Jewish interpreter interpreters. But according to the taxonomical view, if it only fits one genre, then it's just Testament. And we would say anything that helps us to understand this as a Testament, that's all we've got. But once you start reading it, you actually start to see some other things. One, um, it uses a lot of language that's really similar to Proverbs. It doesn't talk about obedience just as kind of moral decline. It talks about disobedience as a lack of knowledge, which is kind of a strange feature that shows up in Proverbs that is really insightful into the human condition. That is, we're not just arrogant and and full and and uh, and insolent, which we are. That that we're also foolish. We also don't grasp the knowledge of, of wisdom, um, and so it presents obedience in that way. And, it, and so it also can be read in light of wisdom. And then the other really significant feature that I and that I highlighted the other genre feature is what's called a covenant lawsuit mm-hmm. and that is Moses if you read it it's actually very confusing who's talking but if you you pick up on the fact that Moses invokes with witnesses who see that Israel have broken this covenant with the Lord and now he's going to be punishing them for their their lack of of obedience to this this covenant you see that it's playing out this drama that's been played out over and over again when a, a, a Lord invites people into a relationship with him, but then they break the stipulations of that and there must be consequences. And what's really significant about Deuteronomy 32, if you read it in that light, is that at the end of the song, Yahweh is still faithful. Despite their disobedience, he is still faithful. And that really is only surprising if you recognize the covenant lawsuit form that's there. Interesting. Well, I, I think it's that's that's helpful to see you apply it to that text. And and maybe some of the significance of this can only come as we look at a particular text and trace the history of interpretation of that text and, and see the way that a, a classification of genre has either limited um, interpretation or has uncovered meaning. Um, but I, I think that the major takeaways that I have from thinking through these classifications of genre in this intertextual approach is that we ought to really be striving to do just that, to read the Bible on its own terms and and to read it in connection with other texts of scripture that will then form these classifications in our mind, even over again some of the genre classifications that we might encounter in our in our Shakespeare class or in our British literature class or and allow the scripture to dictate um, the connections that we make. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for the the average person who is sitting down to, to open the Bible and wanting to read it, this, it can be really helpful just to make the switch in their mind from saying, 
this text must fit a particular genre to thinking, what similarities does this particular passage have to other portions of the Bible? And then how do those fit together? It was a, a light bulb moment for me when I realized that when someone gives a testament, they have to testify towards something. Mm-hmm. And they're testifying towards the covenant. And if they're testifying towards something, it has to have a purpose, and the purpose is to teach. Mm-hmm. And so those three genres fit together extremely well. Another example is the book of Acts. Uh, I really actually stumbled into this conversation because of my study of the book of Acts, where a lot of critics had said, this is written to be history. Others have said, this is written to be literary you know, rep- narrative. And some had said biography. But when you look at the, when you actually read the book, each of those different designations helps you understand in a lot of different ways the different things that Paul and Luke are doing um, in in the story. Mm. I yeah I I think that that's helpful. You start to look at it as a constellation then instead of just a flat um, kind of static piece of literature. It's a bit more dynamic yeah. and and we can gain more from it. So are there some basic resources, Shane, that you would point people to who maybe are fascinated by the concept of genre in biblical interpretation? Yeah, there's, there's really two resources I would point someone to. One would be Dr. Wilkine's book, um, An Obituary for Wisdom Literature. Um, again, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Dr. Kynes has articulated, but I think he's you know, extremely rigorous scholar, extremely helpful, very concerned with reading the Bible as the Bible um, and taking it on, on its own terms. So a really, really helpful book. Um, and then a second uh, kind of scholarly article is um, written by Dr. Carol Newsom, um, and she writes about genre and talking about different um, – questions that can be answered by different genre um, suggestions. And that really is, I think, one of the most helpful articles that's been written on the concept of genre. Um, And it's uh, really, really helpful for seeing how different genre clarifications can help answer particular questions. Right. And and I think that the Hermeneutics books that we use, many of these, whether it's uh, one of the more popular level books like How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, are still really quite helpful as they start to give us categories. But then as we maybe go beyond that to continue reading the scripture as a whole, reading it in terms with other scripture texts and looking for these connections in, in the way literature has been used, we'll be able to, by God's spirit and, and by persevering in the text, be able to enjoy and engage gain from the scriptures. Yeah, definitely. So Shane, thank you for taking the time to talk with us here. Uh, this has been really a really enjoyable conversation. Yep, thanks, brother. Questions and Answers About the Bible and Theology is a podcast of Crystal Lake Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. To learn more, you can visit us at www.clbcmn.org.